In the name of Jesus Christ, the conquering servant, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, the text that we meditate comes from Genesis chapter 22. Did you give up something for Lent? See, every Fat Tuesday, that's the day right before Lent where people seem to binge on all the things that they're going to give up before Lent starts. There seems to be this chatter about all the things that people might give up for Lent. I ran across this list of like 50 suggestions for what people might give up. Most of them are kind of trite or trivial or luxury items, non-essential really. Most of them are like chocolate or coffee or Facebook, things that you definitely don't necessarily need for life, but maybe aren't even that good for you anyway. Maybe you'd beg to differ about something like coffee, but that stuff's not for me. But as we think about things that somebody might give up for Lent, it only really does anybody any good if it's not just an outward show or some obligation that's been put on somebody, but if that sacrifice or that discomfort serves as a personal and private reminder of someone's journey with Christ to the cross, then a custom like giving something up for Lent may serve a good purpose. But let's get down past the trite and the trivial, and realize that God calls us to give up anything and everything, every idol that would stand in his place and that would climb upon the throne in our hearts. So the first commandment, you shall have no other gods, lasts a lot longer than just the 40 days of Lent, and there are far more than just 50 things that might climb upon the throne in our hearts. Now, sometimes they might be easy things to identify. A good old-fashioned idol like Baal. Not the pagan statue that we think about from the Old Testament, but Baal, the god of sex, who parades across screens everywhere and who prances into our hearts and minds. Maybe it's a harder idol to identify, one that hides deep below the surface. One Christian author writes that if you want to find your idol, trace your most unyielding emotions, things like anger and despair and anxiety. These emotions are like smoke that's coming from the fire of the altar of the God that you're worshiping. Might be things like a longing for control and the anger that comes from not getting it, from what God allows to happen in our life might be a yearning for attention and approval that constantly leaves us feeling empty. Whatever that idol is that climbs upon God's throne, the bottom line is that those are not optional idols 
which we might decide or decide not to give up during Lent, God calls us to give them up. Only one may rule the throne in our hearts. Now, sometimes an idol might not even be a thing that's sinful in itself. Sometimes it might be a good gift of God that becomes not good because it takes God's place. For instance, money is a perfect example. Money is a perfectly good gift of God, but the love of money is the root of all evil. What about this one? Relaxation. Quality time with the family. Certainly a good gift of God that he wants us to have with our families until the getaway trips and the cozy sleep-in mornings suddenly eclipse our priority to worship together as a family. Our story for today is about a family, very important family in the history of the Bible, Abraham and Sarah. Now, Abraham and Sarah had not been able to have children long past the age of childbearing for Sarah. But God had promised that they were going to have a child, and through that child, the line of the Savior would come. And 25 years passed, and still nothing. And during that time, Abraham proved that he was a lying and contriving sinner, just like every one of us, until finally the time came where the promise was fulfilled miraculously. And Abraham and Sarah were granted a child. Sarah was 90 and Abraham was 100 years old. Now what those parents wouldn't have done to protect that little child so dearly loved and so long awaited I wouldn't be surprised if Abraham and Sarah had invented helicopter parenting 4,000 years before anybody ever heard of the helicopter. What they wouldn't have done to protect and to love that child. And that little tyke might have been just the one who might be able to climb upon the throne and eclipse God's place in their hearts. So God comes to Abraham with a test. He says, Abraham, take your son, your only son, whom you love, go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Now Martin Luther comments about that command, how it would have seemed to Abraham like this command was from the devil and not from God. What kind of monster would demand that a father violate his love for his own son and kill him? And on top of that, it seems like if Abraham obeyed, this would only do away with the promise that God had made to him, that Isaac would bring the line of the Savior. This command of God seemed to make no sense. 
Yet in great faith, Abraham followed, and he did what God commanded. So early the next morning, he gets up, loads the donkey. He took with him his two servants and his son Isaac, and he was not going to let any time or anyone, including Sarah, convince him otherwise of what God had asked him to do. So he gets the wood ready and the two set out and as they start to approach the place where God had told them to go in the region of Moriah then he tells the servants stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there we will worship and then we will come back to you Now, it's not that Abraham forgot what God was asking him to go there and do, but somehow, in the midst of this command, Abraham trusted that God was not going to do away with his promise. God had told him, through Isaac, your descendants will be reckoned the Savior, and his line will come through Isaac. And Abraham, in faith, was able to trust God and his promise. And so the two keep going along, but now Isaac starts to get a little bit curious. Dad, we've, we've got the wood, we've got the fire, but Dad, where, where's the lamb? Dad, did you forget the lamb? I don't know how Abraham is able to respond without bursting into tears, but once again, Abraham responds in faith, And he tells Isaac, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two went on. The lamb uncomplaining forth, unknowingly going to his own sacrifice. And on top of it all, carrying the wood. Isaac displays great faith and trust in his father's will as well in all of this. Now, finally, they reached the mountain where God had told them to go, and they climbed to the top, and Abraham builds the altar, and he takes the wood off of his son's back, and he lays it on the altar, and he prepares everything, and finally, he turns to his son Isaac, and Isaac now realizing, and Abraham binds his son and lays him on the wood, and Abraham takes the knife And he stretches it out in his hand, ready to slay Isaac. And at this moment, it was clear. Only one was reigning on the throne in Abraham's heart, and it was God. And this test was as good as complete because it was done. Abraham was ready to slay and get rid of everything that might stand in the place of God. God had his proper place in Abraham's heart, and not a moment too soon, the angel of the Lord cries out, Abraham, Abraham, don't lay a hand on the boy. Don't do anything to him, because now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Now, it's important to realize something here. God knew what was going to happen in this test all the way from the beginning, but the 
point of this test is for Abraham to see and to find out what he was going to do at the end of it all and to be strengthened by the fact that God had his proper place in Abraham's heart. And so by faith in the promise of the Christ who was coming, Abraham was able to conquer this test. As the writer to the Hebrews tells us, Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. And now God was about to reveal most magnificent sneak peek of the climax of his entire plan of salvation. When Abraham looks up, he sees a ram whose horns have been caught in the thicket. And Abraham went over and he took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide See, just as Abraham had told Isaac, God himself provided the lamb. He provided the ram who served as a substitute on that day, but not just on that day. That ram also served as a beautiful foreshadowing image, a type of Christ. And the lamb that God would provide on that mountain so many years later. Do you remember how God insisted on just this one special mountain in the region of Moriah that God would show to Abraham? Well, really the only time else that we hear that place named Moriah in the Bible is in 2 Chronicles chapter 3 where we're told, Then Solomon began to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David. So the temple, the place where every morning and every evening a lamb would be sacrificed to atone for the sins of the people and to point forward to the final lamb who was coming, that temple was built on Mount Moriah, the place where 1,000 years before Abraham had offered the ram instead of his son Isaac. And 2,000 years later, God was again going to provide the lamb, the final substitute for the sins of the world. See, the Lord himself was going to put himself through his own test a little bit before we ask the question, how could God demand that Abraham do this and kill his own son? What kind of monster would make a father sacrifice his son? And here is the deafening reality of it all that silences every accusation. You and I are exactly that kind of monster who by our sins demanded that the Father give up his one and only beloved Son. That's exactly what the Father did. Remember his words from last week on the Mount of Transfiguration, this is my Son whom I love. 
And down from the Mount of Glory, the Lamb went uncomplaining forth. And he went up to that hill in Jerusalem, in the region of Moriah, on the mountain where the temple was built, knowing everything that his Father's will would mean for him. Rejection and suffering and death. And the lamb was led like a lamb to the slaughter, carrying his own cross to his own sacrifice. And this time, the father did not stop, but he turned his face away and sacrificed his one and only son. So on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided just as Abraham had promised his son Isaac. So the father put himself through his own test and he sacrificed his one and only son, the lamb who had been slain from the creation of the world. So in the face of every test and trial we come upon, we know that God is not a monster, but he is our gracious heavenly father and he longs to bless us. Because he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? See, God doesn't command us to love him above all because he's some sort of lonely or needy egomaniac. God commands us to love him above all because he knows that everything else that might take his place will only betray us. He alone can give us all things. He can satisfy our needs. He gives us victory through Christ the Lamb. So during this season of Lent and always, we happily walk in the footsteps of our father Abraham offering our lives as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, sacrificing our will and doing God's will. We offer up our whole selves to the one who gave himself on our behalf. And it turns out, at the end of it all, we gain so much more than anything we could possibly give up the season of Lent. We conquer through Christ. Amen. Please stand. Now blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Amen.